Dear friends in Christ, great to see you today. We are in John chapter 4, and we are thinking about the woman at the well, kind of a famous account in the Bible. And, and what I want you to see today is the great love that Jesus showed toward her. Let's understand how much he loves us too, and let's always rejoice in what he did to take away our sins. When I think about the world that we live in today, I think we could say there are two categories of people, or maybe two major categories of people. So we have people who are dead in their sins. They are separated from God. And the worst thing about it is they are unaware. In most cases, they are unaware of their horrible situation. That's how people can go through life and they can sleep at night and everything seems okay because they are unaware. For some people, they are actually alive in Christ, but what happens though, they keep being attacked by the devil. They keep being told they are rotten sinners. They keep getting concerned about that and they keep wondering, am I really forgiven? God wants us to know we are forgiven, and hopefully today we can have a little bit greater assurance of that reality. Going on to the first part here today, we come to what I'm calling the setting, and let's take a look at the map here for just a moment. So we're going to talk about a place called Sychar, which is where the arrow is pointing to. So of course we have Judea down at the bottom, Samaria in the middle. Galilee at the top. Jesus finds himself in Judea. He wants to travel to Galilee. So you can see he's going right straight up through Samaria. That was not the typical way to travel. Almost all Jews, they would not go through Samaria. So you can see they would head to the east they would cross the Jordan River, they would go north on the other side of the river, and then they would cut back west into Galilee. Well, Jesus is different. We know that he's the Son of God. He went there with a particular purpose. Let me read this section, then I want to make one more comment here. So we're picking up in verse 5, and the Bible says, Jesus came to a city of of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So we believe it was about noon, about high noon, the heat of the day, when he finds himself there at Jacob's well. Well, what's going on here? We have to understand a little bit about the Samaritans. So where did they come from? When the northern kingdom ended up falling to the Assyrians back in 721 BC, that is when many people, many of the Jews in the northern kingdom, they were taken to Assyria. And then a number of Assyrians, they moved into that area of the northern kingdom especially in the area of Samaria, they intermarried with the Jews who were there. And when they did that, they became what we call Samaritans. So the Jews who were not involved in that, they didn't like the Samaritans because they were, well, they were really part Jew and part Gentile. So they didn't like them. Maybe in some cases we could even say they hated them. 
So, of course, if somebody hates you, do you want to have contact with those people? No. So the Jews, they would not go through Samaria. They tried to avoid it. So it kind of made a problem because with Judea and Galilee, a couple important places in the Bible, then you have Samaria right there in the middle. Well, of course, with Jesus, not only was he willing to travel through Samaria, but he knew all that was coming with the encounter of the woman at the well. We come to that now in the second part. So Jesus loved the Samaritan woman. Let's see how that shows up here. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? And the Bible even tells us Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, the woman was by herself. What's going on? Probably the women would come to the well early in the cooler part of the day. They probably would come back to the well again later in the day when it was cool, but not in the middle of the day. So here is this woman by herself. We find out that she's living in sin. She's probably despised by the other women. So here she is by herself at the well in the heat of the day. What does Jesus do? Does he avoid her? No. Does he judge her? No, instead, he cared about her. He talked to her. He took advantage of the opportunity for him and her to be there together. God puts us into situations in life where we have an opportunity to talk to someone. God wants us to meet them where they are and then go from there trying to be friendly with them and ultimately trying to move them from wherever they might be, either closer to Jesus or introducing them to Jesus, again, depending on their situation. Jesus did it. He's showing us the way here. And then, going on to the third part, we come to the, the bigger topic here on the topic of living water. So first of all, we see that Jesus made her curious by what he said. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So think about it. Jesus was thirsty. It's the heat of the day. He's been traveling. He comes there wanting a drink of water. The woman has come for water as well. So Jesus continues the water theme, if you will, by bringing up the idea of living water. So he's not completely changing the subject, but he's, he's taking what's presented there with water and talking then about living water. What did the woman do? She gave, really, we might call a practical response. She said to Jesus, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us a well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? 
Doesn't that remind you so much of last week when Nicodemus said, well, this idea of being born again, does that mean I have to get back into my mother and then be born from her again? So he's thinking in a very physical, practical way, and the woman here is giving very similar information. What is Jesus trying to do? He's trying to point her from the physical that she is so much thinking about, trying to point her to the spiritual, trying to point her to the eternal. And then Jesus explained his great offer that he was making to her. He said, everyone who drinks of this water from Jacob's well will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst but the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Did you notice the key words that he said there? So he talked about the idea of never thirsting. He mentioned about a well of water within you, and he also mentioned eternal life. If you think about those three phrases, those were far different than the daily grind this woman had to put up with coming to the well day after day, also being dead in her sins, also being concerned about dying, also being concerned about her eternal destiny. She had all these different issues going on, and what was Jesus doing? He was offering her a way to fix all of it, to be so blessed. Now, did she get it? Well, not quite yet. The woman was really still thinking about regular water. She said to Jesus, Sir, give me this water. In other words, this living water. Give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. So she seemed that she wanted what Jesus was offering, but I don't think she quite understood yet what the living water is or the greatness of the offer that he was making. She didn't get it yet, but Jesus had her interested. Isn't that a good way to talk to people? Maybe we shouldn't give them like too much information, but we make them curious and we let them know how wonderful it is. Sometimes we might say to people, when I go to bed at night, I can put my head on my pillow knowing that if I die in my sleep, I'm going to wake up in heaven. And they might be thinking, well, how can you know that? Now they're curious as to how you can, how you can do that each night. So sometimes if we say something about ourselves, maybe they begin to think, oh, I wish I had that too. How can I get that? So we want to make people interested, make it attractive, and so on. Well, we come to a change now. Jesus knew all about the woman, so again, he's trying to continue to move her in the direction of salvation. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. See, Jesus didn't look at her and say, you rotten, sinful woman, you need me. No, he didn't go approach it like that at all, but he said, go call your husband and come here, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. Well, Jesus loved her. 
so he didn't push her away. He loved her, so we could say he spoke to her for the purpose of getting her attention. He spoke to her to help her see her great need, and he also spoke to her to bring her to repentance. He wanted her to have godly sorrow. He wanted her to have faith in him. He wanted her to have God's great blessing of eternal life. And then coming to part five here, the woman kind of changes the subject now, and she's wondering about the two worship locations. It's almost as if she didn't want to talk any further about her own situation. So now she has a question for Jesus. So the Bible says, the woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet since you know personal things about me. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, talking about Mount Gerizim, that is right there near Sychar, where Jesus is at. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. So there are two locations now. Is God okay with that in the Bible? No, God said you should worship in Jerusalem. That was the place. So why the two locations? If you were with us last Wednesday, we took a look at Jesus cleansing the temple and if you think about the image that I showed you, we could see the temple itself. And then just to the left of the temple, you had that large open area. That's the court of the Gentiles. So that is where they were exchanging the money and selling the animals. But that was supposed to be a place where the Gentiles could gather and pray and worship. And yet it was all being disrupted. So Jesus showed his love for the Gentiles by driving those people out. Now, Gentiles could not go in the temple proper, so the Samaritans would not be allowed to go in there either. Only the priests, the Jewish men, the Jewish women could go into the temple proper and only in their particular designated areas. So maybe the Samaritans said, they don't like us anyway down there. We can't go in the temple proper. Let's have our own place of worship here at Mount Gerizim. So that's part of what was going on and why she's asking the question. And then Jesus went on and he explained the bigger picture here. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. What does that mean, salvation is from the Jews? Well, think about it. The Son of God, when he came down from heaven, what kind of flesh and blood did he put on? He put on Jewish flesh and blood. Of course, we knew that was happening. It was promised that he would be a descendant of Abraham. Jesus continued, but an hour is coming and now is. He was saying, hey, the Messiah is here now. I'm the one, but he didn't quite reveal it yet. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. When we think about Jesus in his ministry, about 40 years later, that is when the Jerusalem temple would be destroyed. So, of course, that was such a focal point at that time. But Jesus understood, though, the time would come fairly soon when they would no longer have that place to gather. So what he was saying is the focus should not be on a particular place, not on Jerusalem, neither on Mount Gerizim, but the focus should be on worshiping God the Father in spirit and truth. Did you notice that Jesus said it is a must, you must worship in spirit and truth? So it's a very strong word that we have there in the Greek. What does that mean, to worship in spirit and truth? Here's a way to put it. When we worship in spirit, that means that we are engaged in what's going on. We're not daydreaming. We're not looking out the window. We're not thinking about something this afternoon. We are engaged. We are paying attention. We are listening. We are thinking. We are repenting. We are believing. We are trusting in Jesus. So all of that is included in worshiping in spirit. And then to worship in truth, well, that means we believe all of God's word. Now, sometimes people have one or the other. Sometimes people say, oh, I've read the Bible and I believe every word, but then they're like completely disengaged when it comes to worship. In other words, it doesn't mean anything to them. They have like the facts and figures, but it doesn't mean anything to them. That's no good. And if people are only worshiping in spirit and they're all caught up in the whole thing, but they happen to be in a situation where the truth of God isn't being proclaimed, then they're excited about the wrong thing. So we have to have the truth of God. It is the truth that sets us free. And then when we're engaged, when we're paying attention, when we're believing, then we have wonderful worship that is pleasing to God our Father in heaven. And then finally, we come to the end here with what I'm calling the great reveal. The woman said to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Wasn't Jesus kind of declaring a whole bunch of things to that woman? Maybe quite yet, she didn't quite put it together, but he had said so much already. And then Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That's how we have it in the New American Standard. What is it actually saying in the Greek? This would be more literal. I am the one speaking to you. That I am, that is the ego amy that we talked about over and over again with our eight I am banners here that we have in our worship area. So Jesus was really saying, I am Yahweh, I am the promised Messiah. We don't know exactly when the woman got it, but if you read a little bit further there in John chapter four, we know that she was very 
excited. She was very much rejoicing, it would seem, at that moment. She leaves her water buckets. She runs back into town, and she's telling everybody in town, I just met this man. You're not going to believe it. He told me everything about me. He's got to be a prophet. And he said, I am the one. So then she leads this large crowd of people out of the town, coming out to the well to meet Jesus. And what does the Bible tell us? It says many Samaritans believed in Jesus. Now keep in mind that had to be such a stretch for them. They probably are thinking, why would this Jewish man care anything about us? Why would we want to go out and see him? And yet the Holy Spirit had to be so powerfully working in order to show them who Jesus is, to make them sorry for their sins, to enable them to embrace Jesus as the Christ, as the Savior, and for them to receive that great gift of eternal life. I hope you can see how Jesus began this entire thing, how he worked in order to help the woman understand, and step by step, he was helping her to see the truth. Of course, the Holy Spirit was at work, and he brought her to believe. And then what happened? She didn't keep it to herself, but she told so many others, and God used that in a powerful way. May God do the same in our lives too. Let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus, as you showed love for the sinful Samaritan woman, so you love everyone. You even love us, rotten sinners. Thank you so much. Help us to rejoice in knowing you. Help us to know that we are fully forgiven only because of who you are, what you have done, and our God-given faith in you. And then... May the joy within us overflow to others. May it be attractive to them. May you draw them close, and may you lead many to trust in you alone as Savior. Dear Jesus, we pray all such things in your holy name. Amen.